Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Cindy. I'm the young adult and first impressions pastor here at McBick. And we're in the middle of our Sinners and Saints sermon series, where we're looking at Old Testament Bible characters who partnered with God to bring his purposes um, to, to this world. So as we've gone through this series, um, each week we're reminded that these saints and heroes of the faith weren't called by God because of their perfection. Instead, we've seen that they were deeply flawed and imperfect people. Abraham and Sarah doubted God's promises and took matters into their own hands to uh, have the child that they thought God wouldn't provide. Jacob was a deceiver who lied and cheated his older brother out of their father's blessing, and Moses was a timid and reluctant leader who fled Egypt after killing a man. But as Lane has quoted nearly every week of this series um, from Tyler Statton's Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, um, says, to call someone a saint is not to necessarily call them good. It is only to name them as someone who has experienced the goodness of God. Each of these saints is not really remembered for their own goodness, but for the ways that God's goodness was demonstrated in their stories. And this series has also been reminding me of something that Jackie Peeled shared with our young adult group earlier this year. Um, Lane had mentioned um, this in the very first sermon of the series. But in the fall, our young adults were going through a series on the Hall of Faith from Hebrews 11. And we're looking at the lives of men and women who are considered to be heroes of the faith. And so that night, Jackie spoke on the life of Abraham and how flawed he was. Often when we come across Bible stories of imperfect people like Abraham, it's really encouraging uh, and comforting to be reminded that God can use us too. But Jackie shared what was, to me, a fresh perspective on this idea, and that was that if God wants to work through people, all he has are flawed and imperfect people. By nature of being human, each saint and hero of the faith is also a sinner. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Gideon, whose story is found in Judges chapter 6 to 8. And the book of Judges is quite a tragic tale that tells a story of Israel's descent into corruption, starting with their tribal leaders or judges and ending with the total failure of Israel as a whole. And so if you're not familiar with the book of Judges or if you need a refresher, uh, the Bible Project has a really great overview um, that's available on YouTube. And if you are in the Bible app, uh, in the sermon notes there is a link to that overview video. So Gideon was the fourth judge over Israel. And morally, he was definitely not the worst of the judges, uh, but he's also not what you would consider an ideal military leader. When Israel called out to God, begging for help and salvation from the oppression of their enemies, they probably hoped that he would provide a leader who was strong, brave, ruthless, um, to lead them into battle. And instead, God gave them Gideon, who was weak and a coward. And so we're going to enter Gideon's story with verse 11 of Judges 6. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, 
which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. So when we first meet Gideon, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. The Midianites have destroyed all of the Israelites' crops and stolen everything else they had to eat. And so Gideon is performing a task normally done out in the open air um, in a small in-ground enclosure to hide what little grain he has. And it's here that the angel of the Lord appears to him. And what I find really interesting about this exchange is the way that Gideon responds. The angel of the Lord has just appeared to him, called him mighty hero, and said that the Lord is with him. And now when the angel of the Lord had appeared to Moses in the burning bush, we're told in the book of Exodus that Moses covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. But Gideon responded not with fear or reverence, but with doubt and defeat, maybe a little bit of cynicism. As Gideon looked at the oppression of his people, he not only doubted that God was with them or even with him in that present moment, but he believed that God had completely abandoned them. He told the actual presence of God that God had abandoned him and his people. Here's the conversation that immediately followed that exchange. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you are fighting against one man. Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. So this exchange and the story of Gideon really draws a parallel to when God called Moses to free the Israelites from Egypt. God reassured both Moses and Gideon that he would be with them, but both were timid and doubtful that they were the best people to lead and deliver God's people to freedom. Moses' first reply to God was, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And Gideon's reply was not, who am I, but don't you know who I am? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. But again, God responded to both men with reassurance that he would be with them. And again, both responded with doubt and timidity. So as a side note, I just encourage you to go through the story of Gideon this week um, and read it through this lens of looking for these parallels to Moses as both men respond to God's call to deliver Israel out of oppression. 
So in response to Moses and Gideon's questions and doubts, God provided miraculous signs to reassure them of who he was and what he was capable of. And these signs are probably what you're most familiar with from Gideon's story. So first, Gideon wanted a sign to prove that it was really God speaking to him. And so he prepared a meal, which was kind of a big deal, considering that the Midianites have taken all of their food supply. But he provides a meal, and God proved it was really him by causing the food to be consumed by fire. And then Gideon wanted a sign to prove that God was really going to use him uh, as promised. And now it's probably worth noting that Gideon makes this request for a sign after he had already been clothed in power by God's spirit. But for this second sign, Gideon set a wool fleece out onto the ground, and God made the fleece wet with dew while the rest of the ground was dry. And then Gideon asked for one more sign. Just to be sure that God would do as promised, he set the wool fleece out again. And this time, God made the ground wet with dew and kept the fleece dry. Now that he was reassured by all of these signs and clothed in power by God's spirit and accompanied by warriors from the rest of his clan and the tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, you know, maybe Gideon was feeling a bit more confident to go into battle. God had told him to go with strength that he had, and maybe he was feeling pretty strong at this point. But God didn't want Gideon and the people of Israel to feel confident in the size and strength of their army, but to be confident in the size and strength of their God. And so here's what we read in Judges 7. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. As a side note, I'm pretty sure Gideon was like, that's me, right? Like, I can leave. Um, so 22,000 of them went home leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home but he kept the 300 men with him. So Gideon's army started out with 32,000 troops, and God scaled them down to 300 men. So for perspective, that is like starting out with everyone living in the Mechanicsburg Area School District and narrowing it down to only the people here this morning. So as you can imagine, Gideon was afraid. 
going into battle with 32,000 warriors seemed doable, but now with only 300 men, it felt impossible. In response to Gideon's fear, God provided encouragement. He told Gideon and his servant to go down to the Midianite camp, and at that very spot and that very moment, Gideon overheard a conversation between two Midianite men. God had given one of them a dream about a loaf of bread tumbling into their camp and knocking down a tent, and the other man interpreted that dream as a sign that God had given Gideon's army victory over the Midianites. For Gideon's army of 300 to gain victory over the Midianites would have been miraculous enough. But here's what happened when they went into battle. Gideon divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp, and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled. So God sent Gideon to lead Israel to freedom and told him to go with the strength that he had. And what did he have? He had 300 men, a clay jar, a torch, and encouragement from God. There was no training montage where Gideon spent the next year of his life you know, secretly lifting weights and doing push-ups in the wine press, and he wasn't you know, training his men for combat with all kinds of drills and exercises. God didn't tell Gideon to gather up enough strength um, so that the Israelites could win the battle on their own. And God didn't even tell Gideon that he and his army were stronger than they thought and they just needed to believe in themselves. For Gideon to go with the strength he had just meant showing up as he was and trusting that God's strength would be sufficient to give them the victory that God had promised. And when it came to the actual battle, Gideon and his men didn't even enter the enemy's camp or raise a sword, yet God gave them victory over the Midianites. Gideon, with all his insecurities, fears, and doubts, and seemingly inadequate resources, simply showed up, and God did the rest. Gideon became a saint and a hero of the faith, not for his own goodness, but because he had experienced the goodness of God. So while Gideon's story is not one that I really grew up hearing as often as the stories of like Noah or Abraham or Moses, 
It's one of my favorites um, because his story of feeling insecure and inadequate when faced with God's calling is one that I've been able to relate to on multiple levels. Several years ago in the young adult ministry, I spoke on Gideon's story and how it reminded me of the insecurity I felt related to music and leading worship. Last fall, when each of us on staff shared parts of our personal stories and journeys, I shared how Gideon's story reminded me of the inadequacy I felt when it came to prayer, how I felt unqualified to pray for others and doubted that God would ever use my prayers the way I've seen him work through others. But God demonstrated his power in mighty ways, despite my inadequacy. And Gideon's story is one that I continue to relate to. This spring at the women's retreat, those of us who were leading or serving in some capacity were invited to arrive early for a special time of prayer and of worship. And Pastor Susan invited each of us to go up to this table that was on the side of the room And it had been set up with a whole array of objects, like paintings and sculptures, figurines, um, you know, different kinds of pictures. And she instructed us to see what object the Holy Spirit was leading us to, and then take a few minutes to listen to what God wanted us to hear as we reflected on that object. So I stood at this table looking at all the different objects, There's a a big painting of a mighty lion and a small sculpture of a lamb and its shepherd, portrait of Jesus, different kinds of crosses, crown of thorns. And I watched as woman after woman walked up to this table and chose her object and then sat down to pray and journal. And I wasn't really sure what object God was leading me to. And then I noticed on the table among all the objects a single Q-tip. And like you, I laughed um, because it just seems so out of place. And so I, I turned to Pastor Susan and I asked, you know, is this supposed to be here? Like maybe it was just left behind from someone cleaning up or, or something like that. She said, yes, it, it was supposed to be there. And so I, I picked up the Q-tip mostly because I was amused by the absurdity of it. Um, and then I found a quiet place to sit down. But almost immediately, when I, when I sat down to reflect on this Q-tip, God began to reveal the significance of it to me. It, you know, it was this ordinary, everyday item, a purely functional object, um, surrounded by all these beautiful, artistic, and overtly spiritual symbols of Jesus. And... To be honest, I had been seeing myself in the same way. On Sunday mornings, you know, I am refilling the mints in the bathroom or making sure that we have enough tissue boxes here in the worship center while the other pastors on staff are preaching and teaching, praying and leading worship. And so I saw myself and my role here at McBeck as purely functional while the other pastors had overtly spiritual responsibilities. And so among our staff of Jesus portraits and lion paintings, I thought that I was the Q-tip. And so as the women gathered back together, I shared these reflections with them. And I added that while the Q-tip was ordinary compared to the rest of the objects, God had reminded me that it still has a purpose. 
lots of different purposes, actually. Um, and it was put there on purpose. And then Pastor Susan shared that um, as she prepared for the retreat, collecting objects for the table was a task that she had delegated to Doris Barr. And she told Doris to gather whatever objects she wanted to. She just had to make sure to include a Q-tip. Because when Susan prayed for the retreat and the you know, special time of ministry for the leaders and uh, the table of objects, the Q-tip was the only item that God specifically told her should be on the table. So not only did the Q-tip have purpose and was put there on purpose, but it had been specifically chosen. You know, it can be easy to view myself or the Q-tip or Gideon in comparison to all the other available options. You know, why choose a Q-tip when there is a beautiful cross or a portrait of Jesus? Why choose Gideon when there are others who are stronger or braver? Why choose me when there are others who have better education or more experience? It can be easy for me to feel insecure or doubtful or inadequate in this role, just as Gideon was in his. You know, to be specifically chosen and reassured of God's presence, and yet still wonder if there is someone who is better qualified or capable to take my place. But isn't that the point of Gideon's story and the stories of all these sinners and saints? That when we read Gideon's story, we're not in awe of his combat skills or his leadership abilities. Our attention is drawn to God and his supernatural ability to turn a coward with a clay jar into an overwhelming victory. When you read the story of Moses, we're not impressed by his skills in communication or public speaking, but by the signs and wonders that God provides to speak to Pharaoh when Pharaoh wouldn't even listen to Moses and Aaron. We're drawn to the power, sufficiency, and goodness of God because of the weakness, inadequacy, and flaws of the saints that he chose to work through. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll be reading from the message paraphrase. He writes, Remember, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Master. All we are is messengers, errand runners from Jesus for you. It started when God said, Light up the darkness, and our lives filled up with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. And there is no confusing God's power with Gideon's. He was as ordinary and unimpressive as the clay pot that he brought into battle. By human logic and reasoning, any one of the 300 men in Gideon's army probably would have been a better military leader. In a ram's horn, 
clay jar and a torch would have been foolish to take into battle. But that's what made God's strength and power that much more evident in the Israelites' victory. It may feel discouraging to think of ourselves as unadorned clay pots when most of us would rather be impressive. But it's our ordinariness that lets people more clearly see the brightness and beauty of who God is and what he is capable of. Sometimes we try to dress up the outside by hiding our weaknesses or pretending to be stronger than we really are. But the more adorned that our vessel becomes, the more it competes with the treasure inside. It's like how in big cities, um, it's harder to see the stars because of all the street lights that are competing with the night sky. But the further you go into the countryside or the desert, as the glow of the artificial lights grows dimmer, the stars seem to shine brighter and more clearly. To be content with being ordinary clay pots is to go as God called Gideon to, with the strength that we have, however much or how little that might be. We go where God calls us, to our workplaces and our schools, our neighborhoods and our families, to the gym, to Bible studies, wherever that God might be calling us to go. Knowing that we go for his praise and glory and not our own. We show up as we are with our ram's horns and our clay jars, our insecurities and inadequacies, because going with the strength that we have allows us to the point allows us to point to the strength of who God is. And Gideon's story shows us that God is present. In the wine press and in the battle, God assured Gideon that he was and would be with him. We see that God is merciful and gracious. When Gideon questions and tests God, asking God to prove himself, God doesn't scold or reprimand Gideon for doubting him. He doesn't say, you know, you're right, I should have chose someone else. Or even, why don't you trust me? Instead, he graciously responds with encouragement and reassurance that he would be with Gideon and give them the victory. And we see that God is powerful. From dew on the fleece and the dream of the Midianite man to the Israelites' miraculous victory, God demonstrated his ability to do what only he can do. So how is God leading you to respond to Gideon's story this morning? For me, I'm led to respond in a couple different ways. I'm led to consider and surrender the areas of my life where going in my own strength and trusting in the strength of God feels like an impossible challenge. Where I'm tempted to pretend that I'm stronger than I am or where I want to avoid going where God is calling me to until I feel 100% qualified. I'm also led to awe and gratitude for the ways that God has been present and powerful in my life. I'm thankful for moments like sitting down with that Q-tip and am in awe of how God gave meaning to an ordinary object in a way that I couldn't have made up on my own.
And so however God is leading you to respond this morning, I invite us to worship him as a God who is present, merciful, gracious, and powerful. I'll invite the worship team to come up as I pray. Um, if God is leading you to um, seek prayer uh, for the ways that you are um, responding to Gideon's story, we will have prayer partners around the side of the room who would love to pray with you and pray for you. Um, but let's pray as we enter into this closing time of worship. God, you are present, and we thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your power. We thank you for the ways that you've already demonstrated who you are and what you can do in each of our lives. And we pray that um, if those times are um, hard to think of or it seems that you have abandoned us, that we can't trust that you really are here, that you really are for us, that you really are going to give us victory and work through us. God, we pray that our eyes would be opened. And we pray that we would be able to hear your words of encouragement and reassurance that you are who you say you are and that you can do only what you can do. So God, we just pray um, your blessing on this time of worship as we respond uh, to your leading and to your calling. It's your name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>